Hi, I'm Natalie Lima, and welcome to Ladyland. Think about your closest friend. Maybe you know where she works, but do you know what she does all day? Do you know her job title? Do you know what she studied in school? Turns out, I didn't. So, I made a podcast to find out. Welcome to Ladyland. I'm your host, Kim Baldwin. This is a conversation with women from all walks of life and different backgrounds. It's funny at times, serious at times, but always honest. This is Ladyland. Hey, Natalie, thanks for coming to Ladyland. I like to have our guests introduce themselves. Natalie, if you don't mind, uh, tell us who you are. Tell us just a little bit about what you do. Hi, I'm Natalie. Um, I'm a writer and a teacher, uh, mostly a writer of nonfiction essays. Um, I write some fiction too. Uh, Currently working on a novel um, and an essay collection. I also teach creative writing classes. Um, I've taught for The Porch, Tennessee, um, classes on voice and humor, um, and I have a sex writing class coming up. Uh, And I've also taught um, at different institutions for different writing programs. Um, I taught for the last three years at the University of Arizona um, intro to fiction writing and English composition. How's it going in Arizona? Um, it's going okay, you know, but I grew up in, uh, Las Vegas and the weather's very similar. I didn't know about Las Vegas. I knew Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you like a hot state. Yeah. Both are home. So I grew up, I was born in Miami. My dad is, uh, immigrated here from Cuba. He's, a came here on the Mario boat lift in 1980. I don't know if you remember that. It's what the movie Scarface is based off of. Actually, Brian De Palma in the opening credit sequence, he uses actual news images from the actual boats coming from Cuba over. And so my dad came here then, and my mom grew up in New York City. She's half Puerto Rican, half Irish, but she grew up in mostly in foster care with a Dominican family. And so they met in Miami, and so I was born there. Then when I was a baby still, we moved to Las Vegas. So I grew up there. And then my parents had like a really ugly divorce when I was uh, around 14. And so then I moved to Miami with my mom. And so my father still lives in Vegas and my mother still lives in Miami. So both are home to me. Wow. Okay. I knew bits and pieces of that, but I didn't know the whole cumulative yeah, I think people like they kind of like they try to figure it out because of my all my writing they've read. Um, they're just like they're like, oh wait, where is she from exactly? So I always just say both. Yeah, man, I did not know that about your dad and the. Now I want to go back and like rewatch, look up that new story and rewatch some of the footage. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It was a uh, an exodus of about I think one hundred twenty five thousand Cubans. Um, and so Castro opened up the country and allowed anyone who wanted to leave to leave, you know, one of the few times that he allowed this. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's been a few waves of Im- Cuban immigration in the U S 
And so the big wave we often talk about is the one from the early 60s, right after Castro took power. And so there's actually sort of like a racial and class divide that you see there, or difference at least, where the Cubans who came in the early 60s tended to be more affluent, lighter-skinned Cubans. And then the Cubans that came in the early 80s in the Mariel Boatlift were poor Cubans who were brown and black. And so there was like a lot of controversy in the news about the Cubans that were coming. People didn't want them to come. You know, people saw them as sort of like the trash from Cuba or whatever. And so it was controversial. Man, okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm writing an essay. I'm writing an essay about this. Ooh, okay. Yeah. How do you navigate writing about your parents and your family? Like, do your parents read your nonfiction essays? It's hard for me because, you know, my relationship with my parents has always been a little bit dysfunctional, you know? It doesn't feel like a normal relationship like other people have. And so even, like, whenever I'm thinking about this, how to answer it, I think, like, on the surface, people see my story as, like, oh, the typical all-American dream. She comes from this, like, immigrant family, and then she, you know, grew up in a working-class community and then ended up going to a fancy college, graduating as a first-generation student. But, it, you know, it wasn't like I had... You know, I didn't have a father who was like, it's, I feel weird talking about this right now because I'm like, what's on the podcast? What's not? Whatever. Um, you know, I think people like see this sort of Im- the picture of the immigrant father and mother and the father and mother both busting their ass for their kid. And my father was pretty useless growing up. You know, he was not um, hardworking. My mom was the breadwinner my whole childhood. My father could barely keep a job. Um, He was lazy. Um, And, you know, it's something that I've had to contend with because I know a lot of Cuban folks that come here and they come here with nothing and they they, uh, start huge, do huge things with their life and um, prosper. Um, But that's not, you know, my story with my father. And so um, that's something that I want to contend with in this essay that I'm beginning to work on about how it's not like you know the like typical immigrant immigrant dream family you see um yeah so I'm very anxious to read more I like your voice a lot I like the way you can I think because I see myself in you I mean obviously you're a much better writer but I use humor also as a way to just the way a lot of people use humor and you do it so skillfully, and I'm I'm just in awe of the way you can write about, like your the the little bit you've written about, like your parents and maybe more your mom. Oh uh, yeah, sorry, I don't even know. I didn't even answer that question. The initial that question was not, that was an answer. Yeah, my so my father is not a reader. He's not super literate. Okay. So and he's also his English is not his first. He came here at almost thirty. So his English isn't that great anyway. Um, so he does not read anything I write. Uh, my mom, I think she like kind of picks and chooses. I will say my last uh, big essay, the Guernica essay, she did read after it was published. And I was a little bit nervous about it. And um, it was not, she seemed, she liked it. You know, she shared it on social media, um, even though it dealt with a lot of painful stuff from like a painful part of our lives, you know? 
So it's the weird thing. You hear like memoir writers, nonfiction writers say this all the time, that the thing you think the people you're writing about are going to be bothered by is never the thing that they nitpick at. You know, they're always like, no, you remember this like random detail that you wrote about will be the detail they get hung up on. And it's something to you that feels like throwaway. Um, and so I always find that really funny. So that's what happened with my mom. Like she reads something and I'm like, oh, is she going to be mad that I maybe portrayed her in this way or, you know, uh, wrote about certain details of our lives. And it's never those things that she seems irked by. It'll be something silly, like, and trivial. Um, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, this woman's name was this, not that, you know, <laughs> or oh, something like that. Okay. Hopefully, you know, mm -hmm. that's helpful to hear. I write creative nonfiction and I haven't really touched my family stuff. Um, I just, I just quite frankly, just don't have the balls to do it. Um, sure. I would love to, there's a lot there to write about and to unpack, but I mean, everyone says this in every writing class, it's a hard hump to get over of just that fear of writing about your family and them reading it. Yeah. And I think they, depending on your family dynamics, it can be definitely like way more difficult than for me to be writing about. Um, I think that's why some people choose to write auto fiction which is like fiction that is close to the bone close to your own life um i think it's why some people avoid the family stuff altogether uh even when i was about to have that essay published like a week before i hadn't changed any of the names originally the original names in it and all of a sudden it was the first time that i was none of my essays previously i had even like made a big issue of the names in my head and then I wanted to change the names of this one suddenly of all the major people in it. And I, I crowdsourced on Twitter and I asked like, hey, CNF writers, you know, creative nonfiction CNF, mm -hmm. um, CNF writers, what do you guys do in terms of names in your memoir that you write? What did they say? I don't think I followed you yet. I don't remember okay. this. It was super varied. It was like, some folks were, um, some folks said, I change everyone's name, you know? Some people said, I changed uh, everyone's name except for my immediate family. Somebody wrote, somebody I know who has a memoir coming out that has a lot of buzz right now. She said, I don't change one name. It's like, if I, you know, if I'm writing the truth about them, then they, they're getting their name in there, you know? And so it seems to be uh, very varied opinions and people like comfort levels. It's helpful to hear that even that even you had to struggle with that because um, mm -hmm. you're a pretty accomplished writer. I mean, you have an MFA, you teach, you've been published, you have won all of these awards and prizes, and you've gone to the fancy workshops. So it's in my mind, writers like you do not struggle with things like this. It's helpful to hear that that you have these same questions. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, something I'll say um, is I write a lot about often about like uh, sex and love and things like that, sex and relationships, romantic relationships. And I've told people that writing this the one essay about my family that you know, and me at thirteen years old, which there's something about writing about your younger self at that age. 
that for me feels extra vulnerable because it's a time in your life where you don't have a lot of autonomy or power, you know? Knowing that the things that were happening to me were all things that were really just happening to me. I didn't have a lot of power. And so writing about that time and about my family dynamic felt more difficult than me writing about being in my 30s and dating men and it getting messy or whatever. That feels way more chill. Yeah, less like less of an issue you know I'm like I don't I don't mind exposing my entire sex life um but like writing about like the pains of my childhood feels like a whole other beast hello do you like cake brunch having fun then do we have good news for you friend of the pod joy the baker has partnered with William Sonoma to turn some of her favorite recipes into brunch and cake mixes for bakers of all abilities. Shop Williams Sonoma online and in stores now. Also, attend a summer bakehouse class. I attended one in the before times, and I can't recommend it enough. Check out Camp Joy and Pizza and Pints. New summer classes are still being added, so make sure you follow the Bakehouse NOLA on Instagram and sign up for the newsletter at joythebaker.com for all Joy the Baker and Bakehouse news. Happy baking! You're teaching a class at the porch on how to write about bodies and sex? Sex and bodies. Sex and bodies. Have yeah. you taught a class like this before? I haven't. Not one based on just sex and bodies, no. Are you excited? Yeah, I am super excited. Um you know, it should be fun. I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of great sex writing out there. And there's a lot of, you know, I guess bad sex writing too. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of folks who are writing well about sex. And, you know, the reason I like to write about the body is because I've always lived in a, mar- you know, I've always lived in a really fat body, you know, and my weight has fluctuated in giant amounts my whole life. And, you know, I've, I go up a hundred pounds, down a hundred pounds, up another 125. It's like, it's my Achilles heel. I guess we'll call it that. So writing about a body like mine feels um, important. And also, you know, I, you know, I feel like we should all be writing, getting more comfortable writing about our bodies in our writing. Um, most of our bodies aren't like conventionally perfect anyway, right? Yeah, it turns um, out, no, they're not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so... Um, you know, I had this catapult essay that um, came out a couple years ago now. Wait, wait, that one is the... Almost a year and a half. So that one's the one about uh, the men who solicit me online who want me to smother them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that essay may be coming out in another anthology soon, next next year. That essay is good as hell. Oh, thank you. It is so um, good. <laughs> thank you. So it's about uh, living in a, dating in a fat body and then art history, um, fat bodies and art history. So you have, you have an MFA, right? Yeah, I have an MFA. I do. I spent four years in an MFA program. Spent one at the University of Alabama where I started. The program was great, but I didn't like living in Alabama. And so um, particularly the city I was in, I just didn't like living in a s- tiny city. That was the main reason. And people were like, oh, of course you didn't like living in Alabama because it's conservative, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, that really was not the main, that was not the main thing. It was just, the city was teeny tiny. Like you go on a date and make out with a dude and you find out that he's had sex with three other girls in your same MFA program, you know? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> the baby pool was so small. 
And so I was like, this is not for me. I got to bounce. You're all writing essays about the same guy. (laughs) It's a mess, right? And so I had to go. and I got depressed when I was there. And um, so I, you know, I left. I had to reapply to MFA programs. And I, you know, I went to the University of Arizona. um, And West Coast has always felt more like home to me anyway. So um, I spent three years there at the MFA. Yeah, and so I have a lot of opinions about whether or not people should get an MFA, what, you know, the whole thing about that. I have a lot, like, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, I want to hear, do you want to argue both sides? Or are you strongly more? I can, I can argue both sides for sure. Okay, what are the pros? Let's Let's start with the pros. Okay, so if you don't have a writing community at all, it's a great way to start a writing community. And so the people in your MFA are might, might may very well be the people you share your work with for the rest of your life. If you keep writing after the MFA, a lot of writers quit writing after the MFA, which is really sad to me. And so a community, um, you learn, you know, some of the professionalization of the industry, some of that, but not re- that's not really the focus for a lot of it. Uh, you get to spend three years full-time honing your craft. If you're doing a full-time MFA, you know, they have the part-time MFAs, which are low residency. There's also, um, if you want to teach at the college level, having an MFA is necessary. And a lot of folks don't teach at the college level after they're done with MFA. A lot of people do different things. You know, you don't have to go do that. But that's uh, essentially a requirement for a tenure-track job. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who teach college, and they all have MFAs. Sure, sure. Um, and not a lot of them write. I think they wanted to get into academia and be tenured, and you get an MFA. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I mean, so those are you know those are those are great great reasons to get an MFA, especially if there's nothing else that you've found yourself attracted to or interested in professionally. Um, so for some young people who go right after college, it might be their only the only like professional world they've been exposed to really. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I went older. I went at 30. Um, oh, okay. I did graduate school in my thirties too. I took like a 10 year break. Yeah. 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 So I went at 30 and I'm, you know, I couldn't have done it any younger. I was a mess. Um, and so um, the other side to argue. Um, yeah. Let's that- talk about the cons. Okay, well, it depends. Okay, we're talking about money in class now. And so if your MFA is fully funded, what this means for anybody who's not familiar is that you you go with tuition or admission, meaning your program is free. And then typically they give you a living stipend and in return for teaching classes at the university, um, usually English 101, 102, freshman English composition classes, and then maybe some creative writing classes. That's typically the general way it goes. The thing is, every MFA is varied in that everyone gives different amount for a stipend. Everyone gives different teaching loads, you know? And so that's something you have to decide if you're comfortable with and when you're picking and choosing, figuring out which one works for you. Um, But what I'll say is, if you don't have financial support helping you elsewhere, on most of these stipends, they're not going to be a livable salary, you know? I think the highest stipend from any of the programs, it might be around 30K or upper 20s. And that uh, UT Austin, Johns Hopkins, they have like the highest stipends that are, um, that I've known maybe Vanderbilt might have a really high one too around there. But realistically, me at 30, 
I cannot, I can't live on 30K in a city like Austin alone with the bills that I have. I couldn't do it, you know? Maybe other folks could. So the thing is, and then at the, you know, the MFA I was at, the stipend was a lot lower. And so either you have to work to supplement that or you take out student loans and, or you have a partner. A lot of folks I know have a partner who fight, who helps them financially, you know? Okay. So either that partner, if, if you've gone away to go do your MFA, that partner might send you money. Or if it's in the city, your partner goes with you or it's in the city that you live in together, you maybe you live with your partner, so you're not paying rent. So your stipend is going to all the other things. And so um, those are people I know who haven't gone into debt. So I think if, if debt is not going to be an issue for you, um, then why not get an MFA? Or if you're open to the debt, then, you know, then go get it. But honestly, there's no there's not really that many what I believe are actually fully funded, you know, programs. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it is a whole, it's a class issue. And that's why there's a lot of talk about how we need more diversity in MFA programs all the time. It's very true. And I see, I notice it, especially in creative nonfiction. Oh, really? Say more about that. I just feel like creative nonfiction to me feels like the least racially diverse of all the genres. Um, in terms of the people I see writing it. Um, and, you know, I feel like that's that's the genre where I'm like, okay, I, I, re- I would love to see more, like, you know, stories from people of color. And the MFA in general, you know, graduate school is just statistically like this. People who go to graduate school tend to come from people, from families who are educated, right? So that means they're going to be kids who are up, or kids or adults, <laughs> folks who are upper middle class or above backgrounds, you know? And so you end up with a lacking in a diversity of stories. And it's something I would notice, you know, in workshop all the time where people would write about their life experiences and, you know, you could be a beautiful writer and then, but you don't have, you don't, there's no talking about like um, money, in your writing like how do you fund this how do you fund your life how did you fund your life then like how did you do this and that like where's money 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 in the story you know and that's something I'm always interested in is um knowing how people pay for shit (laughs) like how do you pay for your life you know when I read your pieces and I'm pretty well read in this genre there's just not your voice stands out like I don't know who else is writing like you're writing but I haven't I haven't seen pieces like yours and they're missing, and I want them to be very widely read. Well, thank you. This is uh, I'm working on a book proposal as of like a few days ago. Ooh, how how'd that um, come about? Well, you know, I have a literary agent, and I've had her for like a year now. Um, and uh, the last year, I just was I've been just you know quarantine and everything, just not not thriving, not thriving, and then. Um, beyond that, I think I was avoiding trying to push my writing to the next level, i.e. a book, you know, cause I had everything lined up. I have everything right now lined up for a book, you know, it feels like the clear next step. Um, but I think it's, I think I've been sort of the one, um, stopping that path for myself, you know, avoiding it for whatever reasons, my hangups, whatever it is my fears, uh, my therapist thinks I'm afraid of success or something. I don't know. I'm also scared of success. It's terrifying. Yeah. That feels, you know, I think that's a normal feeling. And, um, and so it, I'm, I've, 
finally decided I needed to work on a book proposal because I, I literally, I want to sell a book, not even because I'm dying to have a book in the world. Like I don't feel the rush yet. My rush is literally because of the financial opportunities it opens up having a book. First of all, you might get money from the, uh, a good amount of money from the book, but even if you don't get a good, good amount of money from the book, but it's with a, you know, well-respected press or whatever, um, you're suddenly qualified to teach t- at tenure track level. You know, um, most of the jobs, uh, creative writing faculty jobs ask for a book under contract. I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then you get invited to teach at workshops and do this and that and speak and blah, blah, blah. So there's just all these financial opportunities that suddenly open up to you because of having a book. And so honestly, in my head, it's a pragmatic thing. I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to just do this now. And so I have to write, I'm, you know, working on a, a book proposal now of an essay collection That'll include some of these essays that you've read online. And um, part of a proposal, you uh, write about other writers that are like comparable, you know? Yes. I have so many friends who have done this. Have you been able to find comp titles? Well, I mean, I haven't started, I haven't like dove in hardcore, but I've always, in my head, I've thought of people like that I think of as my writing comparable slash inspirations. Who are they? I'm thinking. Because as a bookseller, this was part of the job. Like, okay, booksellers well, are basically doing comp titles on the fly. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, when literary agents first started reaching out to me a couple years ago, they would write me who they thought my writing reminded them of. So I often got Roxanne Gay, Samantha Irby. My, for me, my uh, Hakira Diaz. I love her, Hakira Diaz. For me, T. Kira Madden is another person um that I feel very I don't know her writing for me feels important to me now Miriam Gerba you know she's somebody that I love too because she writes about um really dark topics she writes a lot about sexual assault Mm -hmm. but she's super funny she's super funny so I love you know I love writers like that that can take the dark parts of their life and, and make it funny Jenny Lawson's another inspiration for me love her um, I, I like, I love teaching her essay, um, Jenkins, you motherfucker. I don't know if you guys have read that. <laughs> it's like my, it's one of my favorite essays of all time. It is one of the best essays of all time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, so, you know, I, yeah, I guess I, I love these, you know, I love a blue collar writer. Yes. Um, <laughs> women writers come from coming from the margins in whatever regard. Um, those are the, that's the writing that's always inspired me the most. Yeah. That's what I want to read. Mm-hmm. I want to see a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think we're getting more of it now. I do too. Which makes me really happy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a different world we're living in now. And I think people are now like, hey, I want to know, how do you have, like, where is the, how are you paying for this life? It seems to be a thing that people are more and more interested in now, you know? Did you read I Don't Want to Die Poor by Michael Arsenault? Oh, I haven't, but I've been told that I need to read it. Yeah, I need to read it. Actually, I should just I should just buy that today. Yeah, it's just it's paperback. It didn't even come out. It went, it's a paperback release. It's real good. I think that you will enjoy. I mean, it's it's all about money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very funny. I mean, he's very funny. It's a great book. Oh, cool. Okay. 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna order that today. Aside from like he and Sam Irby, you don't read a lot of people talking about money, especially oh. not in like like a creative nonfiction way with the humor angle. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess you do. Uh, Jenny Lawson does oh. a lot. Yeah. that's why I love her too. Yeah. Um. Sure. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, Samantha Irby. I mean, that's why I fell in love. So I didn't know. So people were like, oh, you know, when they told me when the, my first essay that came out that got up a lot of attention was the illustrated fat girl cries herself to sleep that you might see on my website. Yes. Okay. It's a silly essay, right? About my life or whatever. And then it was after that essay came out a couple of years ago that people started, uh, a literary agent started writing me and telling me that my writing reminded them of Samantha Irby. And I was like, Samantha Irby, Samantha, I didn't know who she was. And then after that, that's when I started, I was like, oh, let me pick up her her writing. And then of course I became obsessed immediately, you know? Obsessed. Um, yeah, I'm like, oh, well, first of all, ha, like you're lying to me. You're telling me my writing reminds you of her. <laughs> but also it's like, oh, this is the kind of writing I've always wanted to read. Like, yes. I'm going to be in this creative nonfiction space. I want to read. I want to read writing from, you know, a working class brown girl. Like that's the stuff that I want to be reading. And so it felt like a gift when I finally was, when people finally started telling me about her, you know? Yeah. I, her last book, I can't remember the names of her book, the the one with the green cover. Wow. No, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. The essays in that one that are just jokes. There's one chapter that's just, um, it's almost like a knock knock joke. Like it's the same setup every time, and she changes the punchline. Yeah. And she legit does three or four pages of different ways to end that joke. And they put it in the book. Sure, sex is fun. Yeah. It's like, sure, sex is fun, but if like you bought a new Honda, I mean, it's, yeah. So, okay, I need it. So I haven't read that book. I've read her two previous ones. She wrote this one, I think, after she turned 40. You can feel her confidence in this one more than you can in the prior two. Like this one, she really is just like, here goes, motherfuckers. I mean, she <laughs> just like, I love this one in a different way. Like I was, I read this one. I was like, yeah, you like you did it. <laughs> like this is, this is your truth. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm actually driving. I have to drive. I'm, I'm going to, I should, I'm going to audio book that this week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lindy West is somebody else that I might add as a comp on my thing too. Um, 100%. You know, because of there's like the component, you know, she's funny, but also the sort of cultural criticism, which I don't consider myself a cultural critic, but I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm writing a little bit about culture no, no matter what I'm doing anyway, you know? Yeah. But I started listening to shit actually on audio book this week. I was tweeting about it. It's so funny. It is so funny. I listened to it too. Yeah, I don't know. At what, that's right. At yeah. some point she laughs at her own jokes and it's, it is truly, it is so funny to hear her laugh at herself. It's what I wanted. <laughs> I was great. The first essay is about the fugitive. <laughs> um, I never saw the fugitive and maybe it's because she's a few years older than me that for her, it was like a big movie when she was coming of age. Because for me, I'm like, I don't remember that from when I was a kid. She, you know, she tells us the full synopsis of the film in the in the essay, which is literally the essay. It's like her version of the synopsis of the film. Um, and I'm like, that movie is exactly the same uh, synopsis of D- Double Jeopardy, the same storyline. And it literally has um, Tom Lee Jones as the 
the cop on the search for them. Double Jeopardy is one of my favorite movies of all time <laughs> from when I was a kid. That's and, and it's the same plot, pretty much. And Tommy Lee Jones is still the cop looking for the fugitive in the, both movies. And it, it, I lost my shit when I saw that Tommy Lee Jones was the cop on the lookout for Harrison Ford in that essay. I was like, oh my God, that's the same goddamn movie. <laughs> uh, I think you just became a culture critic. <laughs> I'm gonna write an essay that is like you know how poets do this to each other they like write poems to each other I'm gonna write an essay about double jeopardy to this essay uh Lindy West essay you know addressed to that essay you totally should I don't know her but I feel like she would she would love that <laughs> uh, yeah yeah at some point Ladyland listeners, have I got a deal for you. LOL. But seriously, I have a deal for you. Libro FM is the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local independent bookstore. And guess what? We have two of those here in Nashville. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your completely unstructured life. Listen during your commute to your living room while doing chores, walking the dog, petting the cat, or relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. Ladyland special offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one. That's $14.99 with your first month of membership using the code LADYLAND at checkout. It's really easy. What year did you do the Tin House Summer Workshop? 2019? Uh, 2020, a lot of people, they had it online, so folks did it then. So I actually did a, I had like a whole year of Tin House. So I did the winter workshop um, in 2019. You did both. Okay. With Hanif Abdurraqib, if you guys know him. Um, I'm low-key, it's not even low-key. I'm high-key obsessed with him and his books. Okay. Well, I did it with him in the winter. He's such a, such a great teacher. What did he teach? Did he teach poetry or... I took creative nonfiction. That's the only thing I've oh, been Oh, he in. taught that. Okay. I think it was actually his first creative nonfiction workshop he taught. He might have said that. Okay. Because he was typically teaching poetry, I think, right? I've applied to that workshop before he was teaching, but he was teaching poetry. And I was like, I may learn poetry just so I can date. <laughs> like, if this is my access point to him, right, right. I'll learn how to write poetry, I guess. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, it was. It's so good. It's they're different experiences. The winter and the summer. Winter smaller, more intimate, um, and it's only like you're only there with your genre in the winter, and it's in a different location. It's in a tiny, uh, really cool hotel on the coast of Oregon, the Oregon okay. coast, and you know the uh, the Tin House Summer is at Reed College. Mm-hmm. So I went to that one in 2019 also, and um, my professor was Michelle T. Yeah, it was also amazing and I'm obsessed with. Um, and then I actually also took a craft intensive, a Tin House craft intensive in Portland in November of 2019 with Tikir Madden. So I had a whole year of like kicking it with Tin House. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it's such a good, it's such a, it's, it's like the best place. Like if people have the opportunity to go, I'm always like, please go. I've applied. I don't, I don't know that my voice is developed enough yet. Um, it's funny. I applied last year for the one that then the pandemic happened. 
And I was so heartbroken when I didn't get in. And then like truly the next week, they were (laughs) like, oh, can't leave your house. It's a pandemic. And I was like, okay, well, maybe. (laughs) Hmm. Well, if I'm, if it's any consolation, I don't, I almost never get anything the first time I apply for it. Um, And so I just, you know, um, I, that's something I always tell people is persistence. So, you know, I've, I've gone to Vona, a voices workshop for uh, writers of color. The first time I got into that, I didn't get it. Tin House, the first time I applied to that, I didn't get it. Um, oh, that is helpful time. to hear. Okay. Yeah, the second time I got it. Um, Hedgebrook, writer's residency. It's a women's residency um, on the coast of Seattle. You know, it's like it's like one I'd heard about a bunch and you're there for, you can choose like, I think one week up to six weeks or something. And they... Um, they feed you the whole time and they give you a cab and it's supposed to be beautiful. Anyways, they have usually 13, 1400 women who apply and take 40 people a year. And I applied to that three times and didn't get it to like to last year, you know? Oh, okay. okay. So I always tell people just, you know, keep applying. And every time I get it, like the thing that I've applied for, I, it feels like, oh, this was the right time. Like I wasn't ready before, you know? That's why I tell people to be persistent. I mean, I know some writers who submit and submit for years and years to the same thing until they get it, like years, you know? I follow you on social media and you do you do one of my favorite things is you are a woman on the internet. Tweet and delete. <laughs> no, you are a woman on the internet who just celebrates all of the other women. Like you, every time someone announces they got a book deal or they're getting published or you always retweet and congratulate more than almost anyone I follow. And I really, I love to see it. Yeah. I just, I noticed that you do that both on Twitter and on Instagram. Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, um, I just, I spoke at a nonfiction class a couple days ago, like two days ago at Utah state university. And, um, I was asked this about how about literary citizenship because it seems like I'm you know really into it online I guess and I never thought of it like I didn't know it, I didn't know now I know it has a name for it but I feel like I yeah I'm really into doing that celebrating other people because I feel like it's a I don't know what I feel like the writing community it's sort of like it's a back and forth you know and so sometimes we're winning and sometimes we're not. And then when we're winning, we're hoping other folks celebrate us. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm always excited when I see people get a book deal because it feels like, you know, it feels more possible for me, you know, especially when I see other women, other women of color, uh, folks with less traditional backgrounds. So people who I know who may not have the MFA or, you know, may not have like all the connections or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yes, I think celebrating everybody else is a big part of this life. And, you know, all my, all the good opportunities that have come my way in the last couple of years are, I think, because of the community I've built on social media. And so um, I really believe that's super important for people, um, especially emerging writers to create, um, a literary community online. If if you could tolerate it, of course, some folks are like they can't do it, then they can't do it, you know. Yeah. But if you're but if you're into it, you should certainly be celebrating other voices, especially voices that you think should be lifted up. You know, it feels like it. You know, it, it comes back to you, and then it just feels like a it's like a hugely important part of being a writer in the writing world now. 
I hadn't heard literary citizenship either, but that I like that a lot. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. You also are super supportive for emerging writers. You are constantly like sharing information on like, here's things you can apply to. Don't forget about this. Here's the deadline for this. And it's so helpful. Almost all of it is brand new to me. I'm like, I would have never known about that. So I'm real grateful when you do it. Oh, that makes me really happy to hear. You know, it's weird because three years ago, I consider myself like three, four years ago, I consider myself like, oh, like not part of the community hardcore yet or anything. Now I feel so in it. Like I feel very much part of the writing community online that, you know, it's good for me to remember that, oh, this opportunity that I think I'm sharing that I think everybody knows about already. That's not true. Not everyone knows about it. And so um, that's why I think it's good to be to share these kinds of opportunities, even if it's an opportunity you plan to apply to. Um, and I think that's important too, because if you don't get it and another writer does, it's because it wasn't meant for me. You know, they were looking for that writer, not me. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a good thing to be um, sharing all these different opportunities with everyone. And also because I remember being really afraid to apply for things and to put myself out there. It's a really, really vulnerable, scary process. And so, um, if you're encouraging other people to do it, that might be the little push that um, they need to get their work out there in the world. Sometimes we need a tiny little push. And I believe that because sometimes we didn't have support growing up. Maybe we didn't have a lot of guidance from our parents even. Maybe we don't know anything about the literary establishment, so we've never felt part of. Maybe you don't know any professional writers, all that stuff. And so feeling like um, you want to immerse yourself into that world can feel super intimidating. It's really intimidating. I feel like almost the more you know, the more intimidating it gets. Like if you follow <laughs> a lot of writers online and you see that they're teaching at these workshops or you can apply for these, I get really intent. Like there's no way I'll get into this. Like I saw who they got to teach these classes. Like there is no way it's intimidating. So I did the PEN America Emerging Writers Fellowship in 2016 and it's online now. It's based out of Los Angeles, but because of the pandemic, it's going to be mm -hmm. online. And I'm really, I, it was an amazing opportunity and it, it, you get, they, they put you right in the middle of literary LA in that fellowship. You end up meeting tons of famous writers every single week. So you get really immersed in this program um, in the literary community. That's where I started feeling like, oh, I was, you know, part of finally. But I, the reason I'm really into that fellowship is because it's actually a fellowship for emerging writers. And so it's a fellowship where you cannot have an MFA. You don't need any publications. So I had no publications when I applied and they actually don't want people with too many accolades. They really want people who are truly like just beginning, you know, and, and showing, but show promise in their work. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's why I feel like sharing these different kinds of opportunities that lift up writers at every single level is important too. So many of these fellowships and awards there's fellowships that are, they'll, call, they'll be called an emerging writers fellowship and they expect you to have a book already. I'm like, that's, I'm like, mm. <laughs> and I'm like, uh. so um, I just really think it's important to share these things for people who, especially uh, opportunities that give you money. So yes. opportunities might give you some money or if it's uh, workshops that have scholarships available, like things like that, I feel like it's important to share because taking classes in a workshop, taking workshop classes is expensive, you know? It's expensive. And I, 
it's so expensive. I don't have, fam- I have no family money, you know, helping me pay for classes. And so when I first started uh, dipping my toe in circa 2014, and I was working full time and I hadn't written in years. Uh, I was in my late 20s. You know, I, I had a full time job, so I was able to pay for a class at UCLA Extension, my first fiction class ever, you know, and I was like, OK, this is, you know, this is great. But had I not if if I didn't have that job, I wouldn't have been able to pay for this class. And so these things get really expensive. And so, yeah, it's good to let people know, like, when there's scholarships available. Often they are, there are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've applied for things that are like $3,000. And that's yeah. not counting, like, airfare. That's just, like, to get into the thing. So I'm curious, since you're, you know, you're a really big cheerleader of writers and emerging writers. And I assume you're a big reader. What are you reading right now that you really like? Or like what is about to come out that you're very excited about? Sure. Um, I mentioned a little earlier that I was listening to the audiobook of Shit Actually by Lindy West, which I absolutely love. And then, oh, I don't have this one with me, but my friend uh, Katie Standifer, Catherine Standifer, wrote a memoir that came out with Little Brown uh, a few months ago called Lightning Flowers. And I actually just interviewed her for an interview I'm doing for that for her. So you guys should definitely check out that memoir. And then one of my good friends, Dantiel Moniz, her book, Milk, Blood, Heat, just came out. I just bought that. Yeah. So she's a good friend of mine. And it's a short story collection. She's a Roxanne Gay pick. She's in the... Yeah, she's going to blow up. She's amazing. She's super, super talented. Amazing writer and teacher. Um, And then I just got sent... White Magic by Alyssa Washuta, which hasn't come out yet. Um, and so I just started this too. Ooh, that's a good excited. cover. You're beautiful, right? So I'm super excited about this. And then this might be like kind of, I don't know if it's boring or not, um, but I started reading Slouching Towards Bethlehem by Joan Didion. You know, I've read the essay Goodbye to All That, but I haven't read the whole collection. And so um, I'm actually reading that now and it makes me want to quit writing it's so good the writing is so beautiful you know I'm the Um, same I've read the essay and I've never read the whole book and I'm hesitant mm -hmm. to read it because same I'm worried I'm like this will just break my brain like this will make me quit writing (laughs) yeah 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 I mean you know that's something I just learned about writers in me (laughs) thankfully there's space for all of us in this world (laughs) Natalie thanks for coming by um where can people find you online you're on Twitter and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram at Natalie Lima09. Um, you can also find me on my website, natalielima.com. Um, in, uh, Twitter is where you might find me the most. <laughs> uh, but yeah, both places. I'm very active. And if anyone wants to read any of these essays we talked about, they're all hyperlinked on your website. All my essays are available online on my website. So um, please check them out. Yes. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming to Ladyland. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. It was super fun. I'm Kim Baldwin, and that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. To find full show notes, head over to ladyland.show. And if you know a lady that I need to meet, slip into my DMs. You can find me at ladyland underscore podcast on Instagram. 
This podcast is produced by Mary Catherine Rooker and brought to you by We Own This Town. Logo by Elizabeth Williams. Music by UDrive. Download anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a minute, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review Ladyland. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.